Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you this day, we know full well that you know every heart here. You know us, Lord, with great intimacy of details. Lord, you know all about the intricacies of our thoughts, our ailments, our worries, our fears, our failings, our joys. You know our passions, Lord. And I pray, Father, that um, with the knowledge you have of us, I pray, Lord, that we would gain more and more an accurate knowledge of who you are, and that we might not just learn about you, Lord, that we might, in our time together, give a sense of encouragement to us to pursue the, the lifelong objective of knowing you. And I pray, Lord, that today, the message that you've laid on my heart, that we would hear it with a sense of encouraging us to move in that direction, and not of a sense of condemnation that we haven't arrived there, but that, Lord, you might draw us to yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I may do too much thinking sometimes, but there are things that I think about that leave me baffled. For example, I think to myself, why do millions of people read tabloid magazines and go to tabloid websites and they find out the latest trivia or the latest gossip about celebrities that they'll never meet and that they'll never really spend much time of their life. And yet they seem so fascinated with these people. They want to know all these little details about them. They yearn to know little tidbits of information about pop culture personalities. I find that to be dumbfounding. I don't know. I can't make sense of it. Apparently, they must be watching an abundance of reality shows, which, by the way, are not reality shows because they are carefully packaged entertainment programs that have been strategically and carefully edited to create some sort of drama that wouldn't occur normally. Anyway, and that they've been watching these shows, and many of these people who watch the shows, they think that they quote-unquote know these people. They think they know them. And so they're concerned about all the details of their lives. And, but let's be honest. They may know about these various celebrities, but they do not have a vital, living, dynamic relationship with these stars that they idolize. It's a very superficial kind of knowledge. And what I want to talk about this morning is this theme about really knowing someone. And not just knowing about someone, but really knowing them. Having a deep, vital, significant, dynamic relationship with the living God. So I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Hosea. I'll give you ten minutes to find that if you'd like to... uh, Make your way there. Use your table of contents. It's actually, I'll give you the page number. That might help. Page number 1076. 1076 in the Pew Bible. You know, see, the prophet Hosea ministered to people who were religious. People who knew tidbits about God. They could check off on a list of things about Yahweh, about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They knew various information about that God. They had heard it from their predecessors, from their ancestors. They had heard various things about the God who led Israel out of Egypt. 
But Hosea did not pull any punches when he contradicted their false claims about their knowing God with his sad assessment. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Hosea says this, There is no knowledge of God in the land. Even though people may think they know a lot about God, they don't really know Him. And Hosea is so burdened about that. Despite the fact of their involvement in religious activities, they would go to the temple, they would observe the various major feasts, but they were primarily devoted not to God, they were primarily devoted to their own comfort and to their own pursuit of pleasure. That's what they really live for, despite whatever they may have said. And therefore, their spiritual condition was really nothing less than tragic. You see, because of their ancestry and because of their half-hearted participation in all these religious rituals, they assumed that they were, have a, they were enjoying a special relationship with God. But the true and living God, out of His heart of amazing grace and out of His heart of wondrous love, invited and urged these people to truly become acquainted with Himself, to really know Him. He wanted them to know Him and not just know about Him. And so He urges them in this book to repent and to leave behind the status quo of a shallow and superficial knowledge of Himself and to be intentional about knowing Him in a vital and dynamic relationship. And so that brings us to our text this morning in Hosea chapter 5. I'd like to pick it up uh, in verse 15 and read through chapter 6, verse 6. God speaking says in verse 15 of chapter 5, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction... They will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now I'm aware that it is possible that there are here today a number of us who have perhaps been attending here in the previous weeks as we've gone through a series of sermons on the attributes of God. It's possible to sit and listen to these sermons and hear them with our ears. And to give mental assent to saying, okay, yes, that's, that's what God must be like. That's what the Bible says. It's possible to know those things about God in our minds. It's also possible to not really know Him, even though we know about Him. And so my burden in this sermon today is to really try to glean some insights from this text. And I realize we're not all 
doesn't apply to us directly on every different point, and so I'm going to try to uh, take that in consideration. Uh, but I hope that the Lord will use it as a means of spurring us on to really know Him and not just know about Him. I want to look, first of all, at point number one, to notice that there's an earnest warning here in the text. There's a warning. He wants us to get past denial. As we study this passage, you realize in looking at the book of Hosea, at any portion of Scripture, I want to just remind you now that the original manuscripts in which various portions of the Word of God were recorded initially did not contain chapter divisions, did not contain verse distinctions. It was one just flowing text. And so we find ourselves in this text, I feel like it's important that we not separate chapter 6 from what came previously in chapter 5, and so I picked up the end of that verse because it just sort of flows into the next thing. But anyway, the point, verse 15 here, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Who's speaking here? That's the, sort of the important point here to start understanding the interpretation of the text. And it's clear to me, as you look through the text, that God is warning his people. It is God who's speaking, and he's noticing that their pattern of compromise and their unfaithfulness, he's letting them know if you continue in what you're doing, it's going to lead to some painful consequences. And so God confronts these people, it's important to understand, in love. That what we're reading in the text of Hosea is the God of love speaking to a people who have turned their back on His love. It is the God of love who is giving them a heads up, who is speaking to them through the prophet Hosea in a very dramatic way. We won't get into all of what Hosea was involved in, but showing an incredible demonstration of love, which is a, a sort of a parable of the love that God had for His people. And that He's saying, I want you to know, there are painful consequences that are coming your direction. And I'm giving you a heads about it, heads up about it, because I'm calling you to change your superficial and your 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 shallow ways of relating to me. Well, what did it take to motivate these people to change? What did it take for them to go from being religious to developing a deep and vibrant relationship with God? Well, sometimes God has spoken through the prophets and He has given them words of strong and, uh, and, and uh, urgent sense of invitation to come and leave behind what you've been involved in and come and seek me, come and know me. But sometimes, as you know, verbal warnings and verbal invitations can be ignored and are often disregarded. And in Hosea's day, God chose, having already warned them a number of times, now he's saying to them, listen, I am going to use a horrific invasion of the Assyrian army who's coming into your kingdom. And God's warning here is an expression of His love for them. If you don't understand that in this text, you're missing the point. That God deals with us sometimes in leading us into storms in life in order that in His love He might get our attention and help us realize how much we must be aware of who He is and how much He longs for us to know Him, how much He longs for us to enjoy His love, enjoy His peace, enjoy His joy, and all of those things. When we're so oftentimes caught up in our pursuing our own world, our own desires, our own dreams, and our own passions. 
And so God's warning here is an expression of his love for them, and he's seeking to capture their attention so that they will repent of their idolatrous pursuits and that they'll turn their back to, turn back to God, and therefore they will relate to him on the basis of sincerity, on the basis of really on the basis of truth that they will relate to him in that way. Now, as I've thought about that text and what God is doing for his people through Isaiah at that time, I ask myself the question, what does it take for God to get through to me? What does it take for God to get through to us who are here today? That we might be drawn into an intimate, life-impacting relationship with Him. What does it take for us in terms of, does it take warnings from God? Do we just need God to give us a heads up and His warning about what happens if we completely omit and ignore God and live life as if He doesn't exist? Or if we sort of put God on the lowest rung of priority in our life and we really don't pursue much depth of our knowing Him at all? Are we looking to be filled with a sense of wonder and awe by pursuing temporal pleasures in this world? Living for the things of this world? The materialistic kind of things that the world constantly is saying, look how shiny, look how bright, look how fancy, look how new and modern, and whatever it is that we're always seeking to have, the next best thing, while somehow in our day-to-day life, we're overlooking the awesome God who dwells in absolute majesty and in unspeakable glory. And we really are never awed by Him, but we get awed by the things of this world. I wonder how many of us have lost sight of the fact that as image bearers of God, we are made in the image of God. As image bearers of God, we were made to be in relationship to the God who made us. That's what we're designed for. That's what we're, we're, we're geared for. That's what is our, uh, that's our natural instinct. And here, in this sense, I wonder how many of us find ourselves going through the motions on Sunday, and here we are, we participate in the life together in corporate worship, which is a good thing, of course, but during the week we live as if God didn't really exist. Or if he does exist, that he really isn't that significant of a factor in our day-to-day life. So I raise the question, do you know God? Or do we just merely know about God? The distinction is quite profound. I feel like as I've thought about the events of the last several weeks, I've kept thinking to myself, what is God doing in Hurricane Sandy? Is not Hurricane Sandy a wake-up call from God? That if everything you may have had, and some people, for it, this is true for some people, everything you've collected and, and obtained in this world is destroyed in one big storm. What are you left with? What's the point of your life at that moment? Are the things of your life, do they define who you are? Or is life much more than the things of this world and that there is something that's going to exist after we get past this world and you're going to leave all this stuff behind anyway. I can't help but think that this storm is a wake-up call to all of us to realize that, that, as Paul said, he said, as I went through and my life becomes more and more difficult in the physical existence of life, I realize that I'm not going to last forever, Paul says, and I feel the aches and pains of, of, of so many forms of torture I went through in life, and I'm experiencing more and more about aging. He says, I began to what? The things, I'm looking for the things 
that cannot be seen. The things of this world, he says, I've become so aware of those. Obviously, they're, they're significant. But he says, as I, as I move toward the sense that I'm, my body is starting to fade, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I look for the things that are not seen. Because those things that are not seen, they're eternal. It's as if he's becoming more aware of the fact that he realizes those are the things that truly matter. The things of God. Do you understand God to be a loving, gracious God? When He sends into your life an alarm, when He sort of gets our attention and says to you, I really am calling you to leave behind the idolatrous pursuits that so oftentimes occupy your heart and keep you from really pursuing a deepening and abiding and satisfying relationship with me. Do you realize that when God does that, when God causes your, your plans and your agenda to somehow get uh, uh, wrecked and it doesn't go forward and you find your life, you're just ready to pull your hair out? Which, by the way, if you don't have power after a while, you do some silly things, you, you, know, get, you really get crazy after a while because you're so used to doing certain things. Maybe you've had that experience. But do you realize that when God brings you to the point where your, your agenda is unable to work, it's at those moments that oftentimes you begin to realize what your idols are. And those things become more clear to you. And God's calling you at that moment saying, listen, I'm calling you to love me. I'm calling you to know me. I'm calling you, calling you to, to pursue me. And rooting your significance and your identity in me and not in the things of this world. Um, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, we see a moving plea. There's a sense in which we want to get to the heart of the matter here. And in, in, in this second point here, as we begin in chapter 6, verse 1, obviously the Lord is no longer the speaker here. The one making the plea is not the Lord anymore because it's gone into a plural. The plural pronouns of we and us in this section, I believe, are the words of Hosea, the prophet. And he is urging his fellow Jews. He's urging them to repent and to return to the Lord. Let's read it together. Uh, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. You see, the prophet urged the Israelites to move away from these superficial rituals of just going through the motions. He encourages them to a genuine acknowledgement of the Lord. And like the reliable rising of the sun each day. By the way, when you're a house that has no heat and it's cold, Man, you can't wait for that sun to come up, right? I don't know how you remember that, but that's, that is reality. You get those, those, those blinds, you get them up, get that sun in this house, right? If you look for the sun each day, it's a reminder of what? As he says here in the text, 
He says, as the, as the, as his, sorry, his going forth is as certain as the dawn. As sure as the sun comes up in the every day, so you can be sure that God is a God who keeps his promises. And his promises that he's counting on here are the fact that God is a forgiving God. God is a God who will restore us after we've come to him in brokenness, after we've gone our way and we've, we've done our foolishness, God will restore us and forgive us. And he will keep his promise to renew the ones who repent. And by the way, the word there, return, in verse 1, it's a very familiar word used in the prophets that means to repent, to turn around, to have a change of face, to have a change about, to go in a different direction, to turn away from the ways that we were headed in and to return unto God. God can be relied upon to graciously bind up our wounds. If we've gone astray, if we've turned our back on God, He can do that. And so He calls them in verse 3, let's know the Lord, let's press on to know Him, let's go after what's really important in life. And so I've listed in your notes there a quote by J.I. Packer in a little excerpt from his book, Knowing God, which I would commend to your reading. It's quite, uh, quite a good challenging read for us on this whole issue of who is God and what does it mean to know him but look what he says there what a list of questions what were we made for according to scripture we're made to know God and what aim should we set for ourselves in life to be rich to be comfortable to have it great in this world and do whatever you want no we are the aim that we should set ourselves in life is to know God What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Answer, knowledge of God. And then he quotes John 17, 3, where Jesus says, This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And what is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, more delight, and more contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. And you can look up Jeremiah 9, 23. It's so true. You can boast about your riches. You can boast about your wisdom. But the greatest thing is to boast that you know God. That know, you know God and He knows you. And then lastly, he says, um, What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. And then he quotes Hosea 6, verse 6. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, God says. Can there be any greater, nobler, or more important goal in life than knowing God? I don't think so. And what Hosea is saying here is, let's do what God's calling us to do. Let's know the Lord. Let's pursue Him. Let's press on to know Him with a sense of urgency. Now I want to talk a little bit about this idea of knowing God because I think some of us need to be reminded, first of all, that knowing God is a matter of grace. It's a matter of grace. Galatians chapter 4, verse 9 says this, Now that you have come to know God, Paul says to those in Galatia, and then he backs up and says, wait a minute, rather to be known by God. If we know God, we have to first of all say, well, God first has known us, and God has made himself known to us. And any true dynamic living relationship with God is due to grace. Jeremiah wrote about the blessings of the new covenant in chapter 24, verse 7. And he says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. And So none of us, I'm convinced, 
has ever initiated the process of becoming acquainted with God on our own, it is because God has worked in our hearts that we even have a desire to know Him. And rather than God is reaching out to us in love first, and He's drawing us to Himself by the greatness of His love that He's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And He made known His love by providing this Redeemer who is, whose atoning death on the cross demonstrated His love and His resurrection from the dead broke down and helps us understand no longer is the animosity that was once in place, no longer is there worried about the shame and the guilt that kept us from knowing God. We now can know God because Jesus has done those things for us in grace. So, my friends, knowing God means more than just being religious. It's more than just knowing facts about God. To know God is to have your heart made alive by God. It is to have your heart changed and made alive in terms of being transformed by God. You see, we personally, if we know God, it means that we are personally interacting with the living God. And therefore, we have a a sense of which we begin in some way to love God with our soul. We love God with our strength. We love God on some level with our mind. And these are the things that we begin to have a passion for in knowing God. Now, I don't mean we're going to do that perfectly. We're certainly not going to do it as God calls us to do it with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But it's a sign of which we begin to see ourselves responding with a sense of longing to know God, to enjoy God, and to be in His presence. To know God is to understand His character well enough so that we rejoice when God is respected, but we also react when we are distressed, when we sense that the glory of God is dishonored by people. Right? The more you really know God, the more that's going to be the kind of reaction you have. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you may not know this about my wife, but I've been getting to know my wife now for over 32 years. It's wonderful. It's an adventure. And one of the things I learned about my wife is she likes cards. We like to give our, our, our courtship was built on exchanging of all sorts of cards the old-fashioned way. We didn't tweet. We didn't text. We didn't uh, you know, send all these messages electronically. We sent little notes to each other in our literal mailboxes that you have combinations to in college. You know, we'd have these little notes we left each other all the time. So we've always done notes. At least some of us have done a better job than others. But anyway, I used to send her lots of notes. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Anyway, so I found out that uh, she loves to receive cards, but if the cards have glitter on them, somehow the message of whatever I'm saying to her is not appreciated because the glitter is going all over everything. It's going all over her clothes. It's going over the, the table, the, the furniture, the carpet. It's everywhere. I've often gone into Hallmark and said, can you please have a glitter-free zone so I can find a card, please, that doesn't have glitter on it? Because even if you have a non-glitter card, it gets glitter on it because all the other cards have glitter on it. People, Anyway, so the point is this. If I know my wife and I know that she does not like glitter, then I know full well I'm not going to give her a card that has glitter on it. Bring that over to the analogy of God. If I know God and I know the things that God longs for and I know His heart, I know what He enjoys, I know what He is like, then I'm going to have on some level, a sense in which, God, I'm yearning for your glory. I'm learning, learning for people to respect you. And when something doesn't respect God, it hurts, it aches. I think of Paul. Here he is in Athens, a modern city, sophisticated city, a religious city with lots and lots of temples to all sorts of gods, including an unknown God. 
And Paul looks out and observes what's going on. He's been sort of scouting out the city, looking around. And how does he respond to seeing so many people and no evidence of anything offered to the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? We read in Acts 17, 16, Paul's spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. What's that saying? It's saying that Paul was upset because he looked at the city from God's perspective. He said, there's no honor of God here. They're worshiping everything but God. You see, to know God is to be personally acquainted with His ways. It's to be personally acquainted with His will. Knowing the Word of God as God has revealed Himself to us in the Word, that's how I get to know God. More and more is to know His mind because He's revealed it in the pages of Scripture. And I become more drawn toward the pursuit of those things that please God. I wish I had time to unpack 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I didn't even plan to say this, but the point is, Paul says, I now what? I now live to please Christ who gave Himself for me. That's what I live for. Not just to live for myself. You see, knowing God begins at the point of regeneration and then it has a process by which the knowing of God is something that's a gradual thing that takes, it takes uh, effort, it takes time, it takes uh, uh, the kind of investment that we must make in, 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 in getting to know who God is and what His ways are and interacting with Him on a regular basis. It's a personal encounter with the living God is where it all begins, though. You can't say, say, I know God, and you've never come to God and actually confessed your need for a Savior and felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you're working in your heart. But a relationship with God is to deepen. Once it starts and God does a mighty work in our hearts and we do come to faith and we do respond in repentance, God will do a work to us, deepen that over time as we grow and gain greater insight into God's person and purposes and learn to appreciate the wonder of who He is and what He has done, what He's doing now, and what He will do someday. Turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1, page 1399. See, as the Apostle Paul went around starting churches, he would spend a relatively short amount of time with them, and then he would set things up, and then he'd move on to the next, and so he would send them a letter to make sure that they knew he was still concerned about them. And so he writes to the believers there in Colossae, and he records his prayer. What's he praying for these people? I think I've mentioned this before, not too many weeks ago. Pick it up in verse 9. Paul prays that these people, these believers, will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I'm convinced he's talking about more and more Scripture. That's how you become filled with the knowledge of God's will, is to read Scripture. So that... These believers would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means that they'd live a life that would please God. To please Him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You get the idea that what? That if I know God, I'm going to know Him and His will enough that it's going to make me have a desire at some point on some different level that I'm seeking to please Him in some small way as the pattern of my life, as the direction of my life. I won't do it perfectly, and yes, I will fail to do that adequately any given day or any given moment, but it's the direction I'm pursuing 
as I inch by inch, making my way further and further in maturity as a believer. And so Paul, uh, Peter urges his readers in 2 Peter 3.18, he says, grow by the grace and by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We grow by grace. Grace to realize that I, don't, I make a mess of my attempt to try to follow you and to try to please you, but I still turn back to you because of why? Because I'm claiming the cross, I'm claiming the fact that you're a compassionate, forgiving God, and I'm coming to you in the person, through the person of Jesus Christ. Grace draws us to God. It is grace that keep, continues to make our relationship with God thrive and grow because we admit we fail and need to be cleansed and forgiven consistently. And that's why I think Paul, in chapter 3 of Philippians, you'll recall that earlier, if you could turn there just for a second, page 1398, Paul, Philippians 3, went from being a religious person who didn't know God at all, but he knew a lot about God and had read a lot of the writings that other people had written about God. He'd read the Word of God a lot in the Old Testament, certainly, but here is Paul saying, listen, I, I'm moved beyond all this shallowness, all the superficiality. He says, I've now come into this life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, he says, nothing else is important to me. That is the most important thing in my life now. And he goes on to talk about this personal relationship with Christ. To know Christ is so valuable to him. And he says, in the surpassing value, look at verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What a great thing to know Christ. Not just know about Christ. He says, I know Him. He is my Savior. And, I, and he says, I love Him. And I, I, I desire to, to suffer for Him if that's the case. And Paul then goes on deeper to say what? He longs to know Jesus more and more in verses 13 and 14. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I'm pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He longs to what? I want to know Christ more and more, and I want to finally become like Christ someday. His, his whole focus is a Christ-centered focus. He invested his energies, his passions, his time, his attention to deepening his relationship with Christ. And may I say this as a point of encouragement for us? That, that growth in knowing God is, is, is incremental. It is not something that's going to be instantaneous. Just like a relationship you have with someone here on the earth, it is not something full-blown in two weeks. I hate to break it to you folks, but you don't know somebody real well in two weeks. It takes time. It takes engagement of, with that person in time of, of interacting with them, a time of expressing yourself to them and them expressing themselves to you. And so we notice here, Paul says, let's press on to know the Lord. I'm sorry, Hosea says, let's press on to know the Lord. How am I to know the Lord and press on? Well, I think one thing is we have to continually look to Christ. Behold Christ. And behold the glory of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about that we look, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. He's saying we're looking as if we're looking at something very clear, a clear image that I can see very clearly. I'm looking at Christ, and I see Him revealed in the pages of Scripture. And the more I meditate on Christ, the more I, I wonder and, and look at the, how gracious and, and, and how compassionate and how forgiving and how loving He was. My heart's drawn toward Him. 
and I want to become more like him. I want him to change me. I want him to make me uh, a person who reflects more and more of that glory. And I'm transformed as I keep thinking and meditating and just gazing at Christ in the pages of Scripture. That's how I become what? A person that knows God and then is transformed by that knowledge of God. It happens over a period of time, of course, our whole lifetime until God glorifies us. But once we come to know God by faith in Jesus Christ, we're to keep pursuing a deepening of that relationship. And the deepening comes as we interact with the Scriptures. Because why? Because that's where we hear Him speak. The Scriptures are God speaking to us. Now we have to be careful we interpret them correctly. We have to be sure we don't treat it like a magic book, let it fall open anywhere and just say, oh, that must be God speaking to me and put my finger on it. We're not talking about some sort of silliness like that. We're talking about reading it carefully in the context, understanding what God is trying to say, but knowing that God is speaking and acting, His Spirit will take those words and apply them to your life. You'll hear His voice in the page of Scripture. You familiarize yourself with the clearest revelation of God you could possibly find in the person of Jesus Christ. But a relationship requires an ongoing investment of time. And I think one of the challenges that we face in our society today is people are not, to hold on to relationships in our society is difficult because people are so busy. They have no time to invest in relationships. And so people can be uh, living and sharing the same space as husband and wife, or you can be in a, in a family member, but you hardly ever see those people. You don't really talk to them very deeply, a more significant level. And that, the relationships don't thrive and grow. They just sort of remain the same, plateau. But relationships require ongoing commitment, communication, trust, and investment of time. And that's what it takes to spend time with Christ. Think about Him. Meditate on Him. Let Him minister to your heart. May you, may you understand His love as you see it in the pages of Scripture. Can you honestly say you know God? More importantly, can you say that you are known by God? That's what's important. I was reading uh, just the other day, John chapter 10. Jesus speaks of His sheep. You know, He compares Himself to a shepherd and a sheep. And what does He say? It's fascinating what He says. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own sheep. Isn't that great to know? God knows His sheep. But then He goes on to say this. He says, and my, uh, and my sheep know me. That because we are a sheep, we will know Him on some level. And He says, even as my Father knows me, they'll know me. What's, that, what's He saying? He's saying, ultimately, if we are truly Born again, if we are a child of God by faith in Christ, we will know God on some level here, but there will be some day when we really, really, really know Him in glory when we see Him face to face. And so, yes, we experience a lot of frustration and longing in this world, but that's all the more reason why Hosea says, let's press on to know Him. Let's press on to know Him. Let's create time in my life where I can listen to Him in His Word, where I can spend time before Him and tell Him what I'm thinking about Him and interacting with Him on that level in prayer. I wonder if you could say, do you love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind? I'm not saying perfectly. I'm saying, but is that something that you long for in your heart? Let me ask you this. Do you know what God hates? You ever meditate on what God hates? Proverbs 6 is a good passage to start with. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, 
heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that run rapidly to evil, false witness who utters lies, one who spreads strife among brothers, a person who's divisive. God hates those things. Those things you learn to hate yourself. Well, there are many more things we could say there. I just want to point out one more thing here before we move on to the next point, and that is verse 3, the end of verse 3. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Some of us think, what's the big deal with that, talking about rain? I mean, who cares? It rains here all the time, right? Well, if you lived in a land that did not have much rain, and there were two seasons in which it did rain, it was the winter rains and the spring rains. The winter rains were December through February. Spring rains were March through April. And those were primarily the only rains you would receive all year. Do you think that would be something highly valued by the people who are trying to live life off the land agriculturally? Absolutely. They're, they long for those rains. Those rains bring refreshment and hope and a sense of life is going to now be able to be lived. And so what he's promising here is he says, instead of worshiping the God of Baal, which other nations have been caught up in worshiping and which these people have been prone to do themselves, God of Baal was the God of the storm. They believed that the God of Baal was the one who, uh, shall we say, was intimate with another goddess, uh, Ashtoreth, and that those two gods would get together, and from their um, intimacy, there would come the seeds of their uh, relationship in, in the form of rain. And that, that rain would therefore produce the offspring. The reproduction would be the ground, the earth. I mean, that's rather crude thinking, but that's what they used to think. So here's, here's Hosea saying, listen, don't be worshiping the Baal who cannot do what only God can do. He says, remember, God is like the refreshing rains. He's the God who will come and bring refreshment to you. He's the God you can rely on. He's the God you can trust and therefore be open with Him. Be vulnerable to Him. Be honest with Him. Deal with Him in, in, in a sense of integrity rather than superficiality. And he, so He calls Him to say, listen, Build your relationship with God on the basis of Jesus Christ and grace and then deal with Him honestly and openly and trust Him wholeheartedly. He's like that one who comes like the rains. He'll refresh you. Well, I don't even know if I'm going to go to the last point here. Uh, the last point is not the best point. <laughs> uh, I think I've made my point in terms of the loud sound that got our attention as a warning. And then the second point was, what does it mean to know God? And I would just say this. The third point was basically this. The way to know God and the way to keep on knowing God and to deepen in our knowing of God is to have the Word of God guiding us. The more I'm studying Scripture, the more I'm trying to understand God and what He says and what He thinks and what He's revealed to us, the more I can gauge how effective the knowledge of God is being worked out in my life. And I can receive hope and encouragement because oftentimes we what? Our hearts do get turned aside. We do, we do get times when our hearts are cold. And we don't have a sense of pressing on to know the Lord. And so what's the point? The Word of God. The Word of God will sometimes be like a hammer to break our hardened hearts. Other times, it's like what? It's medicine to our souls. And it gives us the sense of what? It points us to the cross. It softens our hearts. It calls us to say what? What a gracious, compassionate, wondrous God is our God. He wants us to know Him. And He's made it possible through Jesus Christ. Let's press on to know the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, as we bow before you, we, we want to definitely, Lord, move from the realm of just going through the motions, being religious, and just being people who tip our hat to the God who's created all things. Lord, we don't want to live there. And I pray that you would work in the hearts of all of us, that we would want to do what Hosea was inviting the people of his generation to do, that we might press on to know you. And so, Lord, we're asking, first of all, for grace. Grace to turn away from our hiding. Grace to turn away from our shame. Grace to turn away from our indifference at times, our stubbornness, our busyness, our pride, our rebellion, our foolishness, thinking that we know better than you. Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace, incline our hearts to want to let go of that kind of life where we are treating you as if you're not really that important. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a burning desire. Just like the psalmist said, he is so thirsty. He is so hungry, longing to know the true and living God. Lord, I pray that we would have that same sense of desire to know you and to press on to know you, to not let anything come between us and you and to continually come back to the cross of Christ and to see in the revelation of Jesus Christ the wonder of, what it, of who you are, that you're such a gracious and merciful God whose love for us is beyond our comprehension. And so, Father, I pray for even some who are here today, maybe they've never said for the first time, I've come to know the living God through Jesus Christ. May this be the day, Lord, where they come and say, Lord Jesus, I need you to save me. I need a new heart. I need to turn from the way I've been living. I need to surrender to you. I need you to give me new life. Lord, I pray that you would do that even today. And for those of us, Lord, who have already done that in their, in their life, I pray, Lord, you would give us a passion to live for your glory, to want to please you in everything we do, to begin to have a, a heart that's, that, that becomes concerned when, when you are offended, Lord, and when your ways are offended, offensive to our, our ways are offensive to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us a passion to keep digging into your word, to look for you on every page, and to find a heart that longs to know you and to live for you. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.